Hi, everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning back into our series on Israel, Israel's anointing. We appreciate you all for tuning in and just hope it's been helpful to you. And I also want to thank all of our podcast patrons who financially support our program. We so appreciate that support, and we look forward to offering you some special content in the coming year. So stay tuned to that. And if you would like to become a patron and be part of this exclusive content, well, just visit the link that's included in this episode description. Well, today is episode 11, The Ties That Bind, Israel, Egypt, and Iran. And today we are covering Iran. And I hope that in today's episode, you listen all the way to the end, because there's so much that we are going to be talking about that is super important to understand this country. For centuries, Iran was known as Persia, and it became one of the largest empires the world had ever seen, with the empire including not only modern Iran, but Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, and many others. So if you have a map of the Middle East, it's, it's important to maybe stop at some point and take a look at the extensive boundaries of this empire. It's really quite extraordinary. Now, in your Bible, Iran is referenced as either Persia or Elam, E-L-A-M. So when you see that name in your Bible, Elam, maybe circle it and put the name Iran next to it for a quick reference. Now, Elam was one of Shem's five sons, Shem being Noah's son that was blessed. This keeps showing up, doesn't it? His five sons were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. I'm sure I pronounced something wrong in there. But either way, per the ancient historian Josephus, they inhabited Asia from the Euphrates to the Indian Ocean. And the firstborn, Elam, he became the father of the Elimians, from who sprung the Persians. And per Josephus, his posterity are called Elamites. So maybe make reference of that in your Bible as well. You see, it's super important, and I say this often, that when we study our Bible, don't overlook the genealogies. I know they can be boring. Believe me, I know they can be boring. But when we are trying to make sense of biblical prophecy, or even see how Persia is important in the birth of the church, we need to be able to connect the dots because it matters. What do you think of otherwise when you picture or hear the word Iran spoken today? Do you think of the Bible and God's plan for this nation? Or do we instantly think of nuclear weapons and state-sponsored terrorism? So it matters. In light of the present hostility between Iran and Israel, most of us today, including Iranians, are not aware that biblical Jewish history and the history of Iran intersect at profound levels. The Bible contains 240 references to Iran, the Persian people, including prophecies, royalty, epic battles, and history-making decrees that changed the world. It also describes in detail how both Persia and the Jewish people helped to fulfill an extraordinary promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And so just as God used Egypt as a womb to birth the nation of Israel— He used Iran, Persia, to preserve and protect her. When we were stuck in our hotel in Israel after war broke out, we had the privilege 
and I mean privilege, of meeting a Jewish couple from Iran who now live in the States. They had invited us all to sit with them at their table where we engaged in conversation for hours. And they were wonderful, wonderful people. We shared stories, we laughed, we even blew shofars together, which was funny. But we also learned a lot about their country and the people there. They were quick to point out that they were not Iranian Jews, but Persian Jews, which at the time I found to be an interesting comment, but now I understand more fully. Not only that, they also shared with us how they traced their lineage all the way back to Mordecai in the story of Esther in the Bible, which we found fascinating. And although they live in the United States now, their heart, it's in Iran with their people. People, to be honest with you, I never gave much thought to. Any conversation on Iran today is cloaked in terrorism, right? And so we really know very little about that ancient place and the people that still live there. There is, in fact, a Jewish remnant there, of course, but it's only around 10,000 Jews living in a population of around 85 million people. It used to be a much larger group of Jews, around 250,000, but that number dwindled significantly due to persecution. And that might sound odd to us, persecution, because many conversations today that stem around persecution is towards the Arab people, not the Jews. Rarely do we talk about what Jewish people in the Arab countries have gone through. It's usually the other way around, isn't it? Did you know that the vast majority of Jews with Iranian ancestry, again, about a quarter of a million, live in Israel? And another 60,000 live in the United States. Most of us think that most Jewish Israelis are of European descent, but they're not. They're Middle Eastern. They had been refugees themselves at some point. They either fled or were driven out of their homes in Arab countries after brutal mistreatment and unconscionable discrimination. And although many in that part of the world know these things, No one speaks of compensation for these Jewish refugees. No one pities them, and no one seeks to hold anyone to account for the crimes committed against them. But they, too, have suffered. Throughout the 19th century into the early 20th century, Jews in Persia alone experienced debilitating discrimination and severe persecution. For example, the Allahad pogrom or massacre of 1839 was perpetrated by Muslims against the Mashadi Jewish community of Persia, which was then followed by their forced conversion to Islam. There was also the blood libel pogrom in Shiraz in 1910. These events caused many Jews in Persia to flee to Israel before Israel became a state in 1948. Others were left behind. And there are similar stories like this from other Arab countries. So my friends, the Middle East, it's a complicated place. And it's a place with complex relations. So we have to tread lightly. The name Iran didn't come into existence internationally until 1935. Prior to that, There had been variations to the name, but it wasn't until the 1930s when steps began to be taken to formalize the change in name from Persia to Iran, with the request officially confirmed in March 
1935. However, most people that live in Iran still prefer to be called Persians because being Persian relates to a particular ethnicity, while being Iranian is a claim to a certain nationality. Thus, a person can be one without the other. Although Iran is used in reference to the nation-state that it is, its culture screams Persian. The Persian Empire embraced many nations and cultures, right? Each with its own distinctive influence. So Persian exports such as food or art and literature are often highly sought after because of their long-standing and historic connotations with the region. Well, shortly after that name change, the country was ruled by the pro-Western Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the ruler of Iran and founder of the Pahlavi dynasty. And even though his rulership was not always popular, it provided cultural freedom in the areas of economy and education. When it came to women, for example, in an effort to westernize the country, women were encouraged to get an education. They were also permitted to mix freely with men. They even gained the right to vote in the mid-1960s and were subsequently elected into parliament. Do any of us even talk about that? Even the hijab, the veiling, was outlawed and women were encouraged to dress in modern Western-style clothing. But in 1979, that all changed. When the Islamic Republic of Iran, with the boundaries of the country that we see in existence today, was founded following a revolution which ousted the government of the Shah. The Ayatollah Khomeini overthrew the monarchy and replaced it with a government guided by Islamic principles which had far-reaching implications for the rights and freedoms of Iranian citizens. The revolution led to the implementation of strict Islamic codes of conduct in various aspects of daily life. One of the most notable ones was the imposition of the mandatory hijab, the veiling for the women. So Islamic law or Sharia became the foundation of the legal system, which also meant consolidating all religious authority. And that's the Iran that media outlets show today. The Iranian revolution is regarded as one of the most important geopolitical events of the 20th century because it set the template for a new form of political Islam and thus ushered in a deeply conservative theocratic state. And these are all things to consider as we continue to ask God to give us understanding on relations in the Middle East. Because the governments in all those countries are often not a true reflection of the heart and spirit of the people who live there. And that is what we need to continue to focus on. The Bible says God's portion is his people. He will deal with government separately at the end of the age, no doubt about it. But until then, he's after the hearts of the people. Now, while living in Jerusalem, I'm going to get to the Bible side of this. Isaiah the prophet prophesied that the Lord would use a future king of the Persians named Cyrus, whom he called the Anointed One, meaning Messiah, Isaiah 45.1. When Isaiah calls Cyrus the Messiah, which is typically only used to reference kings, it was a metaphor to indicate this was a person whom God would use for a special purpose in his plan. No one could have imagined how this future king Cyrus would help to fulfill the 70-year-old prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah to free the Jewish people. 
Following the exodus out of Egypt, God's people experienced many highs and lows. They experienced blessing when they were faithfully walking with God, and they received discipline and curses when they weren't. Curses like drought or barrenness in the womb or even being conquered by their enemies. Well, by this point, Jacob's family had been divided into 12 tribes, making up the nation of Israel. But after the death of David and Solomon, they experienced civil war and divided up. Ten tribes lived north, making up the northern kingdom of Israel, and two tribes lived in the south, making up the southern kingdom. However, their low point came when both kingdoms played the harlot with God, beginning with the northern kingdom and trickling down to the southern. They left their loyalty of the God of Israel and began to worship the gods of the pagans, even to the point of sacrificing their children to them. And God, being rich in mercy and incredibly patient, although angry about it, sent prophet after prophet after prophet over decades to warn them to stop, to repent and return to him. But they wouldn't. So he sent them all into exile. The ten northern tribes were conquered by Assyria and scattered among the nations, and the two southern tribes were conquered over a hundred years later by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They took the Jewish people and deported them back to the city of Babylon, where they remained in exile when Cyrus became the king of Persia. The books of Daniel and Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ezekiel, and Malachi were all written in the Persian era, which gives us a glimpse of what was happening with the people of Israel at that time. Well, after remarkably overthrowing Babylon, Persian King Cyrus issued a decree, one that completely changed the ways kings rule over conquered people. Cyrus gave the Jewish people permission to return to Jerusalem and commission them to rebuild the temple. This new foreign policy would begin to open the way for God's promise of blessing to the world. Even today, in the 21st century, 70% of the population of the world lives in countries where they don't have freedom of worship. But Cyrus, the great Persian king, was an open-minded, tolerant leader who allowed the people he had conquered to worship God in the ways that they wanted. King Cyrus was the first to install freedom of religion, so to speak, and freedom of worship more than 2,500 years ago. In fact, the Cyrus Cylinder is the first human rights manifesto ever written. It's one of the best-known surviving texts from the Persian Empire, due almost entirely to its proposed connection to the return of the Judean exiles and the rebuilding of the Jerusalem Temple as recorded in the book of Ezra. It's all remarkable. It's inscribed with a text that records the acts of the Persian king as in, and is considered by historians like Herodotus and Xenophon as an ideal ruler of moral virtue. Well, the deportations of the Jews to Babylon came in three waves. The top layer was the royal court. The second wave was the craftsmen, and the third was everyone else. And in that top layer of the royal court was a teenager named Daniel at the time, who became a key figure in the exile because he would demonstrate to the exiled Jews how to live a, how to live a life of faithfulness in an enemy land since they couldn't seem to do it in their own. And God rewarded him for it. 
He became a ruler under Babylonian rule and continued so under the Persians, finding himself over chiefs and lords and all the wise men of Persia called Magi. And in those positions of authority, he remained faithful. God used Daniel to witness and spread his truth to the kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia. He prophesied their rise to power, for example, in Daniel 5. And so King Darius placed him in a significant position of authority within the Persian Empire. And although he was cast into the lion's den at one point because he prayed to God rather than to the Persian king, King Darius declared upon Daniel's miraculous rescue that everyone in his kingdom should tremble and fear before the living God, Daniel's God. Even Cyrus of Persia, from whom Isaiah's earlier prophecy was directed, which predicted his role in the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple, Isaiah 44 and 45, he made up his mind to fulfill those prophecies as his God-given mission. He not only issued the decree that the Jews could return and rebuild, he actually financed the whole thing. I mean, this is, God's amazing. Well, just as there were three waves of deportations many years ago, there would be three waves of return. And in these three waves, the promised seed of our Messiah, Jesus, was preserved. The first return was under a man named Zerubbabel, who was in fact of the royal line of David. So the princely line was reestablished first, a line from which the genealogy of Jesus, traced in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, takes us all the way back to Zerubbabel. A little over 90 years later, there was a second return under Ezra, who was a priest. He brought back the Levites and restored the religious life of the people of Israel. And not much later, Nehemiah then came, bringing with him a few craftsmen, doing the rebuilding of the physical side of the nation. So the royal side priestly side and the physical side were all going to be worked on. So the Persian empire was divinely used by God to not just restore his people, but the temple, the priesthood, and his holy city, Jerusalem. And even though that took place many years ago, the importance of that is still felt among Persian people today. So Persia was used by God to restore and rebuild. Next, It will be used by God again to save and deliver. You see, the Jews, after a long period of time, were no longer slaves in Persia when Cyrus gave the command to return, which is why few did. They were now part of the kingdom. They were marrying, having children. They were involved in trade and business and making money. They were working in the royal courts as scribes and such. By God's grace, they had rebuilt their lives, but now they integrated into Persian society. So life was good. Why go back to a place that's been destroyed and not rebuilt in your lifetime to enjoy? Not to mention there is now a whole generation of their children that have never seen Israel or the glorious temple of Solomon in its day. Persia's where it's at. It's wealthy. It's beautiful. So Jews stayed in Persia, which is why there were so many Jews still there in Iran until recently. During the waves of return, a young Jewish girl from Susa, the ancient capital of Persia, would find herself queen of the empire. 
Raised by her uncle Mordecai, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, whose great-grandfather had been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar in the exile, he acted as a father to Esther. And together, they both became key figures in God's story to save his people. He used this Jewish family to save all of the Jews within the empire, which included Israel at this time. You see, one of the king's most trusted advisors was a powerful man by the name of Haman. He had become second in command of the kingdom, and he hated the Jews, so much so that he was seeking to annihilate them. To do this, he manipulated the king into issuing a decree of death for all Jewish people in the kingdom. Queen Esther and Mordecai were the two people who would stand in the gap on their behalf, risking their hidden identities as Jews, but also their very lives, to approach the king and expose the plot. And they did. And the Jews living throughout the entire empire were spared, including those in Israel who were actively rebuilding the temple of God, which included the line of Zerubbabel the royal line from where our Messiah would come. And so God raised up a Jewish Persian queen living in what we know as modern-day Iran to protect the promised seed of our Savior. Haman was hanged, and the Bible tells us that many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them, Esther 8, 15-17. Persians across the empire put their faith in the God of Israel, looking for a promised Messiah to come, which is why our Persian friends in Israel could trace their lineage back to Mordecai. Descendants from the Jews living in Persia at this time are people that are living in Iran now. Many Jews have left. Others intermarried with the Persians mixing in now with that part of the Arab world. So we can't just cry out for the annihilation of Iran because they, they house terrorists or fund terrorists. God still has his people there, despite the corrupt government that's running it. About four centuries later, Iran would be used by God again when Persian magi, Jewish wise men who would have been studying and searching Jewish scriptures saw the sign in the sky spoken of in Numbers 24, 17, that a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter would rise from Israel. They traveled from Persia to Israel to honor the birth of the long-awaited King of Kings, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And these magi would gift the child with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold that would most likely come in handy when the young family of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus would find themselves living far from home in Egypt to escape Herod. Friends, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And you can be sure that what he's working out in the Middle East right now goes far beyond our understanding. It goes far beyond media and governments. He's aligning everything for the close of this age. And as it says in the book of Daniel, he will do according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Daniel 4.35. And you see, Persian influence didn't stop there with the birth of Christ either. It continued to Jesus' death. When he told the repentant thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise, Luke 23.43. Using a word to describe heaven, derived from the Persian term for garden. And then again, weeks after his death and resurrection at the Feast of Pentecost, a pilgrimage feast where Jews from all the surrounding countries were required to travel to Jerusalem and participate in, Jesus' disciples experienced the outpouring of God's Spirit in the upper room, right? They were speaking in tongues, which captured the attention of all of these traveling Jewish visitors. And of this group of people listed in Acts chapter 2, there were people from Iran, Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, Elamites. And they became partakers of the initial harvest of God's family. The first born-again group of believers in Christ were from Iran, Persia. And they would then return home after the feast and spread the word of the gospel and become the place of the oldest community of believers in the East. It's no wonder that God is using the people of Persia again today, revealing himself to the people in Iran, Jews, Muslims, descendants of those who intermarried, descendants of Shem, descendants of Abraham, by revealing himself in dreams and visions and supernatural ways as in the days of Hagar and Ishmael, bypassing governments and religion, making Iran, ancient Persia, the place of explosive growth in Christianity today, making it the fastest growing country of believers in Christ worldwide. Just as he used Persia to protect the Holy Seed and build his family, he is using them again to restore and rebuild his people. Because testimonies coming from believers in Iran say that the first thing they feel besides love for the true living God is a love and burden for the salvation of Israel. Much like Cyprus did when he fulfilled ancient prophecy. What a testimony this will be to the Jewish people when their neighbors who once hated them are transformed by the love of God and even willing to lay down their lives for them. And you know, do you know who God is using mightily in that whole entire mission? Women. Women coming to faith in Jesus Christ are starting house churches all over that country in secret. And he's giving them supernatural boldness to speak truth and to stand in the face of the cruel laws coming against them. What does the church in the West say to that? To women starting house churches. To women who are literally laying down their lives for the gospel and even laying down their bodies for the gospel when they're found out and raped and beaten. Because their testimony is, I have given him my soul and my heart and my mind. And now, as they're being beaten or raped, they say, I will now give him my body. What do we say to that? here in the West. God is using women in Iran of all places, even granting them great courage in the protests of 2022 when women rose up to protest the wrongful death of a young Iranian girl. And their courage inspired millions of women around the globe and continues to do so, as this year's Nobel Nobel Peace Prize winner, 
was Iranian activist Nargus Mohammadi, the imprisoned Iranian human rights ad advocate who for more than 20 years fought for women's rights, making her a symbol of freedom and standard bearer in the struggle against the Iranian theocracy. Something our new Persian friends in Israel joyfully celebrated that very night that we met them. All of this, friends, all of it, everything we've been talking about in these episodes, it's all something that we as believers, we need to ponder things over there more deeply and ask God to give us a better understanding into. Before Khomeini's revolution transformed every aspect of Iranian society, Iran was a very different world. But since then, the people there live under strict Islamic rule, which is why access to the word of God is illegal. Preaching the gospel is illegal. Worship and discipleship are illegal. And yet, hunger for these things is greater than ever before. So pray for Iran. Pray for God's people there. Pray for him to move upon leaders like he once did with Cyrus. God's story is such a powerful, beautiful story. Do not judge a book by its cover. Yes, there's terrorism and brutality and evil beyond our comprehension. And as judged, the Lord will bring those works into judgment. There is judgment coming to that nation. But our job right now is to love his people, Jews, Muslims, and everyone in between, taking the good news of the gospel forth to them because he loves them. Well, I hope this blessed you today. Thank you again for tuning into our podcast series on Israel. And we just thank you for your support. And we have our final episode next. And I hope you join us in that. If you would like to become a patron of this program, please click on the link in the description of this episode. Until then, God bless you. Music.